Welcome to the Film Crew Love Podcast. Let's have some fun. Welcome to the Film Crew Love Podcast, the love of film labor, the labor of film love. I'm your host, Imhotep. I did something a little different for this podcast. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking to a legendary cinematographer, Johnny Simmons, ASC, and I decided to do uh, several parts to this. Um, His time schedule, my time schedule, and his depth of knowledge and range uh, forced me and encouraged me to create several parts to this interview. The first part uh, is about 15 minutes to so. Um, listen and enjoy and uh, we'll do other parts going forward. How you doing, Emotep? Excellent. Excellent, Johnny. Excellent. I'm so glad we're able to connect uh, under these circumstances. Uh, a lot of my colleagues who I uh, enjoy collaborating with uh, have mentioned you uh, in passing as one of the uh, pillars in the Cinematographers Guild for um, inspiration. So um, I can go down your list of credits, but I'm more so interested in your spirit, your soul, and the collaborative spirit and the skills of well, cinematography. So uh, I have to go ahead. say something about this whole idea of mentorship and inspiration. And the thing about it is that, you know, I'm just going to use myself as an example. I fell in love with the uh, visual image very early in life. You know, I take still photographs. I don't know if you know that. Um, and I take them all the time and shooting them since I was 15 years old. And I also paint and make collages. So visual storytelling has always been something close to my heart. Then I met a man named Carlton Moss. Carlton Moss um, did a film called The Negro Soldier, 1945. He used to live with W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson's road manager, Lena Horne's road manager. Used to work at uh, the Mercury Theater as a writer with Orson Welles and John Houseman. And Carlton was blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And when I was in undergraduate school at Fisk University, Carlton would come down there and do a class called The Image of the Black Man in American Cinema. And one day after class, he saw my photographs and said, my God, you're a cinematographer. I had never heard that word before. I didn't know what a cinematographer even was. I was from Chicago. We, nobody was a cinematographer in Chicago. So then what happened was a different kind of relationship was born. He sent me a subscription to American Cinematographer Magazine. Shortly after that, Usman Sambini, the father of African cinema, came to Nashville to screen uh, Black Girl and another film called The Money Order. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're really amazing films. And the following morning after the screening, I get a knock on my door. And it's Carlton and Usman Sambini and um, this interpreter that's with him. And Carlton says, see, look at his pictures. He's a cinematographer. 
Sam Benny said, yeah, he's definitely a cinematographer. Shortly after that, Carlton borrowed a 16 millimeter Airflex and sent it to me. And I began to mess up a lot of motion picture film. So Carlton um, became my mentor, you would say. And he helped me get into school at USC and go to film school. He put me on different kinds of projects. We shot a lot of stuff together. Even while I was in school, we'd make a lot of black historical biographical films, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Underground Railroad. We did a film called Two Centuries of African-American Art at the LA County Art Museum is where we started with a man named David Driscoll. That movie's been getting a little bit of attention lately because Mr. Driscoll passed away recently. But let me get to the point. The point is, I had a reality that shaped my life and became part of my life. And it was being a cinematographer, or being a storyteller, an image maker. And I run into someone. And we began to talk about that reality. And because we share a common reality, we have a strong affinity to each other. And that strong affinity turns into an exchange. And maybe because I'm older, they feel like I'm mentoring. But what I'm really doing is I'm sharing a reality and sharing a love with them. And I walk away from the experience feeling like, my God, that was a real good conversation. We're going to stay in touch. And then the next thing I know, Hotel, is that somebody is calling me their mentor. So the, men the word mentor is interesting because that's not how I define the relationship. I define the relationship of having a common love and a common desire to increase this reality that we agree upon. You dig what I'm saying? Right. I do. So that I, do. I stand on the I... shoulders of sharing realities and affinities with people who now I can call my mentor. And it's easy to be a mentor because the love doesn't go anywhere. I wake up in the morning thinking about pictures. I go to bed thinking about them. You know, I walk down the street framing stuff all day and without a camera or with a camera. And then I run into you and we start talking about it. Next thing you know, we're on a roll, you know, and we gain a relationship with each other and we both grow from it. That's the other thing is what some people call a mentorship is an equal exchange that helps us both yes. grow, you know? So I, I don't know if I went off on a tangent, but. No, that's beautiful, brother. That's beautiful. And that's the collaborative spirit uh, because the road right, goes exactly. both ways and both are willing to share and receive. That's right. All right. That's a, that's a fascinating story. I had no idea you had roots in Fisk uh, through Nashville from Chicago. Yeah, and then in Chicago, so... how I got to Nashville was a partner of mine named Bobby Singstack. His family owned the Chicago Daily Defender. You know, the Chicago Daily Defender newspaper yes. was established in 1906. It was the oldest black publication in the country. And through Bobby, whose brother was my best friend, uh, took me under his wing. And 
navigated me in my desire to become a still photographer. And um, those still pictures is what got me into school in Nashville, Tennessee. And basically those still pictures, still cameras saved my life. Cause you know, in Chicago, growing up in Chicago during that time and probably even now, there weren't many role models to latch on to in the community, especially in the segregated community. I just did a talk the other day, man. And I realized that it was about protest photography. It was for the Getty at the Getty Museum at the, uh, what's that thing called? LA Photo did a panel. And I was wondering what I could say about my photographs the night before. And I was sitting at the hotel and suddenly I realized something that I was born in 1950. Black people didn't gain the right to vote until 1965. Not only that, only a few years before then, segregation laws were changed, kind of. <laughs> kind of even now, right? <laughs> have they really, have they really right. changed, right? <laughs> but um, so I realized something that my photography and my eye has been shaped by protest because all my life growing up, all I heard black people talk about was, you know, not being able to vote, not being able to go to this restaurant, got to be careful, can't go down there. You know, I can't tell you how many times I heard the story of Emmett Till growing up. And we are the sum total of all of our experiences. And by that, I mean, it shapes our vision. It shapes our point of view. So every piece of art I do is protest art because it's in my DNA. I don't have a choice. Because in 1965, when I first fell in love with photography, it was the same year that Black people were given the right to vote, you know? Mm. And what was really scary, man, was I was talking to a partner of mine yesterday and we did some math. My father was born in 1902 and he was like 20 years older than my mother, 20 plus years older than my mother. When he was 17 years old, Harriet Tudman died. I have a collage I was working on well, actually, it's finished, and it's got Harriet Tubman in it, and she's sitting with some slaves that she freed. So slavery isn't some history that's been pushed back in the past. I'm one generation away from slavery, and those conversations about slavery were fresh. My aunt looked up. She was funny. She was 101 years old. Me and my son took her to the Japanese restaurant down in Louisiana, and she didn't know what to get. So she got a California roll. And then she's sitting over there eating it with a knife and a fork and putting salt and pepper on it, right? <laughs> and she looked up at me and she said, for no reason at all, Hotep. She said, when I was a little girl, the people that babysat me were freed slaves. The vision, the compositions, the moments I choose to freeze in my photographs, the vision that become the references for when I light a situation or when I move a camera. All those subtleties are affected by everything that has made you, you. You know what I mean? That's, that's what bothers me when people from other cultures and other races shoot our stories. I mean, 
I, I just feel like we would have a better vision of a Harriet Tubman story or a Frederick Douglass story. You know, we would shape the frame differently. We would see it from a, the perspective of that DNA that's working, you know? And Carlton gets me a job working at their um, production company as a PA. They use the best cinematographers in the world. They use Vilma Zygmunt, Sven Nyquist, Victoria Storaro, Laszlo Kovacs, Haskell Wexter were all people that shot for them, all these Academy Award cinematographers. And because Carlton got me the gig, they made sure that I was a PA in the camera department. So then what happened was, it was my very first day of work. I had never been a PA before. And I walked onto the grip truck that was parked on the street and there was no one on there. And the first thing I see is the grip box. The grip box is that box where they keep all their tools and it's usually next to the steps so it can have you know fast access. And on this grip box are the most horrible cartoons of black people you can imagine. There's Martin Luther King sitting in a, water, in a watermelon patch drinking a bottle of ink, you know, the next thing you know, he's sitting in an outhouse eating a slice of watermelon, just horrible shit, right? And then they had some Asian people, you know, calling them gooks and all that kind of stuff. And Mexican Cesar Chavez is like crawling underneath a barbed wire fence, sweating with a uh, donkey on his back, just horrible shit, right? So I get out, I walk out that truck and I go into the office and I call Carlton up. And Carlton says, to, I say to Carlton, hey man, I don't know, but I think you hooked me up with a, something you didn't realize you were doing. He said, what? I said, I walked under the grip truck and I described what I had seen, right? Carlton said, Simmons, let me ask you a question. Do you know any black people making movies right now where you might be able to go and learn? I said, no, I don't. He says, you really want to be a cinematographer? I said, yeah, Carlton, I want to be a cinematographer. And he hung up the phone on me. And I worked with them rednecks for about two years. I'd have to listen to all the nigga jokes and all of that. It was not the most comfortable environment to be in. There was this one cat, his name was Jerry Posner. He was a Jewish man. And he would always set separate from these guys. And, um, never participate in their sick humor. You know, he'd just sit over there. And a lot of times he'd be staring at me. 20 years later, I'm doing a show for Will Smith called All of Us, and it's at Warner Brothers. And when you park your car at the stage, your name is on the wall and what it is that you do. So one morning I arrive at work, it's really early, and Jerry Posner is standing in my parking space. I said, damn, Jerry, what's happening? He says, man, you know, I saw your name up here for the last few days. I just wanted to tell you, I knew you'd be okay because you didn't let those people stop you. And what I always try to tell people, Hotep, is that your passion has to be greater than any obstacle you're confronted with. Whatever it is you feel is 
the mission that you're trying to accomplish, nothing can make you stand in the way. That passion has to be greater than anything that stands in the way. You don't even see the shit standing in the way because that thing that's motivating you, that love, that thing that's pushing you from your heart, doesn't even let that shit bother you. You know what I mean? And that's one of the things I try to share with people. And if they don't have that spirit in connection with what it is they're trying to do, then whatever they think is the second best thing for them to do, that needs to become the first thing they need to do. Because, you know, it ain't no easy road out here. Passion. That's excellent, man. That's so... That's a hell of a story. Uh, that sounds like when my father hung the phone up on me as a young boy because I was not wanting to learn how to swim. <laughs> and he told the swim instructor, throw him in the pool with his clothes on. He's going to learn today. <laughs> hung up the phone. Let me tell you what, Johnny said, if I, did, if I didn't learn how to swim, I'd be like a seal. And uh, my clothes were wet all day, brother. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. Yes, exactly. I love that. All right. That's right. Okay, man. So that's so as you uh, matriculate through this industry, um, obviously passion is what drives you. Um, talk about the turning points, man. I mean, you know, you spoke on the grip truck. Obviously, things turned uh, different points through culture uh, to where we are now. Um, what are the things kind of stick out to you uh, on your journey as you matriculated uh, as a cinematographer? Well what was interesting and what I realized from that experience with working with those white folks was that I decided that as soon as I was in a position to be in charge as a cinematographer, one of my main concerns was to change the face of the crew. You know, I'd be the only black person on the crew, period. Me and another dude named Rodney Hooks, who was working as an AD in a production office, right? We were, he was the only black cat I saw for years. And then when I'd go on a lot like Paramount, I'd see a brother man, a security guard or something, like a half block away. We'd be so damn glad to see each other. We'd be waving and shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm -hmm. So becoming a cinematographer is an interesting journey. Because first of all, um, there's a technology that you have to become fluent with. And then there's the navigation of the society that cinematography is around, the production company, the directors, the actors, the producers, the crew. You have to learn how to navigate that environment. And then before you know it, you're a cinematographer and you're shooting stuff, right? Um, so that being said, I knew that cinematographers could change the look of the crew. So I've always hired a crew that looks like the world we live in. Check back for part two with Johnny Simmons.